welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management, demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council. This week I'm joined by Lauren Solomon. Lauren is CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre, an independent think tank that focuses on how markets can be designed to deliver better outcomes for consumers. Lauren, uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. Morning, Luke. It's delightful to be with you. Hey, uh, we go back a fair way indeed I think when I took over as CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council way back in ancient history sometime you were on the board but I was thinking we actually haven't probably spoken um, (laughs) since at least before COVID and then we saw each other at a, a federal government energy industry roundtable, which was being conducted on Zoom and was super fascinating. But while we listened to all, all the people and the, the various opinions on, on how the energy sector is, is travelling at the, at the national level, we did find time to text in the background, <laughs> reconnect. And in the process, um, uh, I think I pitched you on uh, coming on coming on board for, for an episode of the podcast because I've, I've, been, I've been watching your progress. From, from afar and just been really impressed by the work the CPRC is doing. And so that's a very long wind-up of me saying, it's delightful to see you. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, absolutely. You too, Luke. And um, look, I think it's just efficient if we're able to um, maintain multi-levels of communication um, <laughs> while we're going about our days. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it's more ways of connecting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's delightful. And, and hats off to you and the Energy Efficiency Council for this fantastic podcast. It's so important we can find ways to connect at the moment and particularly over the last 18 months. Um, the issues certainly haven't gone away. Um, so it's fantastic to be with you, Luke. Lauren, um, you've obviously got a background in the the energy sector, but I thought it might be useful for our listeners to take us back to your to your life pre-CPRC. Do you want to give us a bit of a sense both um, of where you work, but also um, the kind of work that you were doing, which I think segues nicely into the work you're doing now at the, uh, the research centre? Sure, Luke. Look, I think it's always um, just the mixed bag description generally of, of where what I've done over over the past um, well several years. Um, I started my career in the New South Wales government, where I was working on water and energy policy. So my background was as a resource economist, and I was very interested in all things that um, couldn't be captured and valued by markets, and how you could go about putting values on those things and price them into markets and and get the responses we need. And so I made the transition kind of through New South Wales government at at the policy level, um, worked for some ministers there, also then moved down to Melbourne um, for the Clean Energy Council and and got perspective then of working for industry associations um, uh, and worked on a lot of the the policy issues with with large-scale solar actually and emerging technologies back at that time. Um, so that was a, another really interesting lens. But I think the common thread probably through um, my career, whether it's been in industry associations, in government itself, um, I've spent five and a half years at AGL Energy as well, um, has always been public policy. So um, how governments can develop good public policy based on the evidence um, and so I just love working in and around that space um, in different, um, different parts of the market, different parts of the sectors to understand the problems a little bit more than you can if you're just in one. That's a really key point. You know, obviously there's there's great strengths. There's people that sort of stay in the same place and go go deep. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also you know um, a great utility in uh, in moving into different positions in the sector and looking at some of the same issues through the lens of, as you say, um, a policymaker 
an industry association, a, a commercial entity that's looking to turn a profit while meet its broader responsibilities in terms of environmental and, and social and the responsibilities to to shareholders. Um, it can't, do you find yourself as you're kind of doing your work at the CPRC kind of almost putting those hats on as you kind of, when, you, when you're looking at an issue and thinking, well, well, if I was sitting in this part of the market, <laughs> how would I be looking at this? Is that, is that it, as a skill that you, that you, that you utilise? Yeah, it's hard not to. It's hard not to bring some of that um, lens. And um, I think it's always really important to remain grounded in who you're there to represent for us as consumers. Yep, so yep. it's quite a, an easy kind of um, place for me to sit and be. But um, absolutely playing through your mind prior discussions that, you know, you would have seen happen um, while you're in government or while you're in a commercial entity um, and the different arguments that get um, raised to counter those um, views. Uh, I find it really valuable. Um, it was actually David Gonski that kind of really influenced my thinking on contributing broadly across the sectors. Um, I listened to one of his um, orations at, at the Uni of Melbourne uh, um, following his, his review of um, education funding, actually, um, the Gonski Review. And he was talking about his experience, um, you know, in the United States, but also compared to Australia and just the observation that Australians tend not to move across the sectors as mm. freely as they do in other countries. And he was talking about the fact that that can sometimes mean we, we can't collaborate as much on the big issues and that we we can't develop as much shared understanding and middle ground that, that's often required to tackle the big challenges. And, and that really made a big influence uh, on me. Um, and um, I've, I've kind of never forgotten it. And, and so that's kind of something I'm always thinking about is that to tackle big public policy problems, it is really important to have diversity of views around the table. And it is really important to build shared understanding about the problems define the problems really well so that we actually are implementing the right solutions to them or the, the most effective solutions that you, that you can get. Um, so, so that's kind of always been at the heart of it for me. Um, the other thing that, um, you know, I started obviously in economics, resource economics, um, I've just always had this niggling feeling that um, a lot of the assumptions that are made um, about how how people behave in markets just never really washed well for me and and so um, I, I ventured off over this time uh, kind of into behavioural economics and did some postgraduate psychology study because I just really wanted to understand, you know, to what extent the assumptions we make about people's behaviour are actually accurate. And, and lo and behold, um, a lot of the time <laughs> um, it doesn't really hold up to, to how things go down in reality. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a, it's a bit of a theme on the on the podcast, Lauren, the the, 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 the topic of behavioural economics come comes up people with an interest or an expertise in behavioral economics um that uh, end up in the energy efficiency and energy management or interacting with the the kind of topics that we deal with in the energy sector there's a fairly high hit rate <laughs> and a, and you know a relatively high level too of skepticism that you know classical economic models bear any relationship with what is actually going on in the real world um so i, I think we've defined your your kind of ethos and that you bring to your work at the CPRC. Can you tell us a little bit about the CPRC and and uh, what it's focused on? Yeah, so um, we're an independent not-for-profit um, consumer think tank. And so absolutely um, the, the reason that kind of I was so attracted to this opportunity to establish the centre was 
to produce research within for consumers to drive public policy change. And that's what we're all about. Our mission is to reimagine markets, um, to create a better future for all consumers. And so, you know, my team and I really think about well, what sort of evidence do we need to collect about consumers' experiences and their expectations that can adequately inform um, business practice change, but also um, government policy. Um, and so we've done a lot of research um, in the areas of data and technology over over the last 18 months, we've been very focused on COVID. So what sorts of experiences consumers were having with essential service providers, energy being one. Um, and then also looking to, I guess, the evolution of the way we think about market governance and the role of regulators and policymakers as market stewards to shape um, the markets that they're creating. And, and particularly when you think about new technology markets, that's, that's a really important thing because the regulation itself creates the market. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't exist without it. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, so that's kind of what we've been um, investigating over the last few years. Um, and we're, we're just starting a project now exploring consumer wellbeing and so thinking more about what are some of the outcome measures for consumers that actually genuinely tell us whether consumers' lives are being made better off by the markets and, and the providers that they're engaging with. Well, when I, um, when I was uh, texting with you in the background of that industry roundtable, I was pitching you on coming onto the podcast. I think I, I uh, suggested this as a, as a bit of a, a pulse check on how the energy transition is working uh, for consumers. So obviously CPRC has a very broad agenda, but I'm going to, I'm going to, going to take the host prerogative and focus in on the, on the energy element of that. And I, I was reflecting that, you know, I've been at the EEC for almost 10 years. So going back to, going back to 2012. So yeah, it has <laughs> <it's> gone, <laughs> gone pretty quick. There's, we've been keeping ourselves busy. Um, but 2012, uh, there was kind of a, some talk, you know, you know, what, what does all this mean for consumers? It kind of hadn't, the drumbeat of a consumer-centric reform agenda hadn't kind of been embraced in the same way that it has now. And, and certainly in terms of the rhetoric that you hear from all different parts of the energy supply chain, um, you wouldn't find anyone that wouldn't, you know, agree at least at a high level that, you know, we need to make this this transition in terms of, you know, the, the, the commercial elements of it, the, um, you know, how we work with vulnerable consumers, you know, how we th we think about the impacts of regulatory reforms. Like, it's got to be consumer-centric. Like, everybody, you know, it's almost a motherhood statement. My question to you is, is it actually consumer-centric yet? Or is that just, is that kind of like, a, you know, more on the side of buzzword and less implemented in the way that people are actually making decisions and shaping markets? Yeah, that is a great question, Luke. Um, I mean, if I think through the kind of all of the responses we've had from consumers over the last few years through our research, um, you know, and, and even before that, looking looking in, in other roles, look, I don't know that consumers would agree with that statement that, that the market is really there to serve them or that the providers are there to serve them. I think that, you know, the way I kind of think about it is something really genuinely consumer-centric is kind of that concept of is it something that's being done to them or is it something that's being done with and for them? Yeah. You know, and so what's the role of how we engage with consumers and understand their needs and expectations and embed that in the design of the policies that we are producing? And unfortunately, I think we've seen a shift in the way policies have been made over the last 10 years too. Um, there's just a lot more going on for everyone in the space. Yep. Um, and it's very difficult to 
gather the sorts of information and data and representation that you need to develop good public policy. And often it's consumer voices that are excluded from that process simply because the resources are not there relative to the industry, to participants that are able to participate in those conversations. And so I think that's concerning. Uh, There's a bunch of ways you can think about how can we do that better, but it's not easy. It's absolutely not easy. But I do worry that a lot of the discussions we tend to be part of are a bunch of people talking about engineering or economic solutions to problems rather than really going to the heart of what what is it that we're actually trying to solve here for the people Mm. who are receiving the services and the products and how are their voices being represented in that process to ensure we're designing something that's fit for purpose. Going back to your points around being able to put on those different hats and the, the roles that people play and you've got the government you've got the you know the industry associations um and the and, and the companies that operate in that in that space um it's almost like no one's properly occupying that position of the consumer and thinking about how all of this stuff that is surrounding them impacts from a consumer perspective is that kind of what you're saying yeah i think our processes are outdated so Ten years ago, it was a standard thing that, you know, you'd, you'd release, you know, your first draft of a, of a consultation process. There'd be a couple of workshops, you know, there'd, there'd be the final draft, um, you know, there'd be a RIS as part of that. There'd be, you know, detailed kind of processes because the process of policymaking was just slower. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just slower because we didn't have presumably emails and communication and media and everything moving at the pace that we now have. And so I think what we're trying to do is kind of hang on to that sort of notion of the linear process. But the problem is we have so many processes running in parallel now that that process probably doesn't make much sense anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, 10 years ago, the, the kind of the, the, the market was relatively stable. Yeah, that too. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the, you didn't have this, you know, avalanche of new technology sort of coming coming down on us and the, the need for regulators and policymakers to kind of effectively, you know, respond in real time to what it all means and work it out as they go along. Um, and and so there was a, stri- a sense that energy market reform could be kind of and should be actually a relatively slow and staid mm-hmm. process. And then we, that... that that, that I think that continued for a while, and then we and it was clear that we were just going to go off a cliff if we continued doing that. So there's, I think there's, I would say there's, there's been a bit of a recognition that that model doesn't work. But whether yeah. we've tri- we've actually done the, the, an effective transition to whatever the new model for rulemaking in a very dynamic and fluid. Yeah technological environment with a lot of complex issues around how it's a I mean it's a bloody Rubik's cube isn't it you change one thing yeah. and it, everything else gets thrown out and so and and solving for that if the kind of the solved Rubik's cube is an energy system that works for consumers that is a hard problem and we're doing it we're, we're doing it with a timer on <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're kind of doing it in air, you know, like it's sort of like <laughs> um, completely. It's it's not an easy problem to solve at all. Um, but my observation is that we, we kind of have to start trying some new things. And, you know, we're seeing that in, in different parts. But I think, yeah, for the problems we're trying to solve, and particularly in a decentralised system, absolutely you're right, Um The power is now shifting to consumers um, and so therefore effective kind of engagement and understanding and representation of of consumers in the policy process becomes even more important than, than it ever was. 
First Fuel is brought to you by the Energy Efficiency Council, a not-for-profit membership association for businesses, universities, governments and NGOs. The Council's mission is to unlock the potential of energy efficiency to deliver healthy, comfortable buildings, productive, competitive businesses and an affordable, reliable and sustainable energy system for Australia. To find out how your organisation can get involved, visit eec.org.au forward slash membership. Last year, um, after Rosemary Sinclair stepped down as CEO of Energy Consumers Australia, we had had her on to kind of reflect on her time, and we talked about all kinds of interesting things. But one of the one of the things we talked about was the need to develop trust mm. with consumers to actually, you know, because a because that's a good thing, and if if um, if there's trust between, I guess, the sector and and consumers, it, it probably means you're you're a lot close to that kind of co-design approach that you were talking about earlier but it's actually you know just in a self-interested way um for for the sector it's actually fundamental to develop that trust to enable the new business Mm -hmm. models and that sort of gets into the conversation around data around you know aggregation and and control i'm teeing up a question around how we engage with those issues around data, around more complex relationships with the energy sector, which is not just about a retailer, but is around an aggregator. There are nerds like you and I who are profoundly interested in in the industry and kind of who can help us and who's got the most dynamic offer and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people don't care and don't want to care about this. They just want the light to go on when they flick the switch. So how do we how do we grapple with all that? The stuff we've been doing around data and technology, I think, is a really good place to start in answering this question. And I would say that most of the themes that come through are that consumers expect some pretty basic things. They expect to be kept safe. Um, they expect to receive fair treatment. And so when things go wrong, they have an avenue to receive effective remedies, um, that companies treat them fairly. But also they expect um, people who are more vulnerable to be protected by the system as well. Yep. And, you know, you start to see, particularly in energy research, when you sort of delve a bit into well, what, what, what underpins kind of building trust um, and, and I guess what is good quality, you start to see these things like, you know, being transparent with me about mm. what it is that you're doing. Those, those sort of guiding principles is something we're thinking a lot more about in terms of effective protection regimes in the long term um, and how you would go about embedding those principles. But I would also say that in this sort of environment where it is incredibly decentralised, where there are going to be more different aspects of energy and energy products and services or energy-related products and services that are entering homes, um, more transparency and more choice, absolutely, Luke, um, is not necessarily what consumers are saying that they want and need. Um, consumers, we're all familiar with choice overload, mm-hmm. are making a lot of choices about every single aspect of their life and consumers have been relied upon as the way to, um, you know, effectively um, discipline the market mm. um, in a lot of ways. Like, oh, well, consumers will choose the best thing and then therefore companies will respond um, but the reality is, as we know, um, it's just the number, the volume of consumers, that, uh, decisions that consumers are now making is, has just reached astronomical levels. Um, you know, we, we see this particularly with um, 
um, digital products and services. And so the terms and conditions of the websites that we even access to determine how much data is collected about mm-hmm. us when we actually browse those websites. Um, we all know it's impossible to read all of those terms and conditions and make informed choices about whether or not that data is being used in our best interests. Um, and yet we sort of continue down this path of assuming transparency, informed choice alone will be enough. And it's just not. And it particularly is not when we're entering an incredibly complex environment with incredibly complex products and services and blended products and services across the markets. I think we need to get a bit real about, it doesn't mean we don't need transparency. We do. That's really important for accountability. But there is some extent to which we have to, um, I think, think about where you rely on minimum protections. you know, uh, uh, rather than informed choice in this sort of complex environment. Yeah, some guardrails, right? Mm. Yeah. You almost want the guardrails to ensure that kind of the, as you say, the minimum service is is reasonable. You know, people aren't going to be overcharged. They're going to they're going to get a basic service, um, and then you can kind of build on that foundation with all kinds of fancy stuff that you know if folk are doing their job, um, you know, is compelling and will encourage people to participate because they're deriving additional value from that. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So the innovation is actually making our lives better. The competition is making our lives better. It's not a race to the bottom because people are befuddled and can't make informed choices. I think that's where we have to head for the world we're entering into, which is why we're very interested in in fairness, in safety, um, in inclusion. And then how do you go about embedding that in economy-wide laws that would apply across the sectors because I think that's the other big risk here is if we get too sector focused on the regulations that we're designing, we're actually not going to be delivering a fit-for-purpose regulatory regime. Well, and it's particularly um, relevant for the space that we work in at the Energy Efficiency Council because the different kind of regulatory regimes, particularly in the residential space, like they collide up against each other, like, you know, in terms of minimum standards for, for homes, um, whether you're talking about rental homes, um, whether you're talking about the National Construction Code and how buildings are built, you know, thermal performance of homes has a profound impact on your on your ability to load shift. Yeah. And so if you think about them in silos, like you actually, it's very hard to get an optimal outcome for consumers, optimal outcome for consumers being, you know, an affordable energy bill in a warm home that doesn't make them sick. <laughs> But if you just focus on the energy the market bit of it, you're never going to get there to that optimal outcome. And so, you know, you're sort of taking a step back and putting yourself in the perspective of the consumer. The consumer isn't sort of floating in some kind of white space, kind of with things that they want. They are sitting in their cold house, <laughs> looking at their energy bill going, I'm paying all this money for energy and I'm freezing. What's going on? Completely. And so, like, that's kind of the interesting, you know, go, going back to your, your question before about are we consumer-centric or not yet? The consumer sitting in the cold house spending an hour and a half reading through terms and conditions, <laughs> you know, is probably still where we're at, unfortunately, <laughs> for some people. Yeah. So what are we doing there? So I think, like, until we actually really shift um, our perspective and understanding of, hang on, all of these markets are supposed to actually serve consumers and the people that's Mm. why they're governed and designed and there are a bunch of firms that compete and offer products and services to make our lives better so it's just so curious to me that we spend so little time really understanding the lives of the people for which these policies are supposed to you know, serve um, and then designing markets and, and, and guardrails and governance regimes to ensure that the products and services are actually doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we are 
where, where it's the right time to think about different approaches to, to bring that more to the fore in the design of our policies and regulations just so we don't waste resources and time designing systems or um, uh, business models that are actually not going to be around in the medium to long term. Yep. Um, there's a lot of opportunity cost that comes with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're almost out of time. You know, what are the emerging issues you're seeing? You're, you get paid to think deeply about consumer issues. This is this is your whole job. Um, and so um, I, I kind of want to pick your brain on, on what you're seeing that's coming over the horizon, particularly in relationship to the energy sector and how it interrelates to consumers and the things that folk um, that are engaged in this space should be uh, should be starting to think about as we uh, as we make our way into this uh, this exciting new decade that we're working our way through. I guess there's a few things I've been thinking about recently. The first is um, I mentioned before speed, that things are just going to happen quicker. And so we're going to see products and services start to hit our shelves, I think, before we even really quite understand what they do or what the implications are. And so there's a really interesting question for businesses and policymakers there about what are the guardrails, you know, how are you going to ensure these things are safe and fair and that they're not going to result in exploitation, um, that they are making people's lives demonstrably better. Um, That's a really big one. And so, uh, yeah, I think that goes to that process of policymaking itself will need to change in Mm. some ways. Um, The next thing I've been thinking about is also the complexity problem. So the more products and services you have in a home where you're being required as a consumer to make informed choices, like how do we actually make that work (laughs) in reality? Um, There's a lot of different ideas, you know, aggregators, you know, virtual butlers, all of these sorts of things. The question for us is always, you know, okay, some of those might be solutions, but how do we also make sure that the intermediaries that are going to come through to make this simpler are also acting in consumers' interests? Um, So the problem doesn't necessarily go away just because we have intermediaries to reduce the number of choices we have. It just creates new problems, which are fine, and then we need to think about how we actually regulate that. And so... um, so there's kind of those interesting questions that are emerging um, and just the reality of not being able to rely on kind of disclosure and kind of buyableware kind of things in this environment, particularly, you know, AI is going to make a massive difference, I think, um, as well. Consumers are going to have a really tough time, I think, understanding what, what those products and services actually do and, mm. and how they work and um, whether they're safe. Um, so that's another thing. Um And then, of course, there's the distributional impacts, and I guess this is something that came through with our COVID research really quite strongly. Um, We know that some groups during COVID-19 across the community were pushed even further behind, so people who were already vulnerable. Um, But we also know that there's new and emerging groups that are finding it really tough, and and a couple of the groups that came through time and time again in the research over the last six months of last year uh, were young people. Um, Young people were having incredible difficulties um, with all of their essential bills, including energy, they were taking on, you know, high-risk, high-cost credit products to kind of make ends meet. Um, we know they're already falling behind in terms of um, home ownership. Mm. Um, and so there's some really significant, I think, intergenerational issues that we're going to have to tackle and you know especially when you add climate change and Mm. everything else to the costs that are accruing on the shoulders of Australian young people Um, so I think that's something that really needs more focus and then also um, 
you know, the other group that we, we released some research on was culturally and linguistically diverse communities um, and the fact that, you know, they've consistently received worse service across every essential service market, including energy, um, you know, almost double in some cases the, the poor experiences and inability to access the support that's available. And so when we're thinking about, oh, we've announced some support or we've announced a policy that people should be able to benefit from and gain access to, um, much more thought being put into, okay, but how is it actually reaching consumers and is it reaching the consumers that you're intending it to? Because from our research, there's certainly big groups across the community, very large groups across the community that aren't receiving those programs, that aren't receiving those policies simply because we don't put the effort into uh, making sure that we're connecting people up in the right way um, with, with that support and with those programs. That is a that is a significant to-do list for the next decade. Yeah, just a few things, right? <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tack one question onto the end, which is if we're serious about this uh, designing consumer-centric markets and, and making these all of these evolving and emerging markets, which are transforming rapidly, it's not just energy mm. and across, across all different parts of our economy, do we just need to you know, massively ramp up resourcing people that are focused on, you know, embedding that consumer perspective. Is that, is that the answer is, or is that part of the answer? Like how, how do we meet the challenges that you've just outlined? Yeah. Um, so obviously I'm going to say 100% yes, of course there should be more resourcing. Um, (laughs) Sure. Give me more money. I'll solve the problems. (laughs) You know, however, thinking more broadly beyond um, just CPRC and the yeah. consumer movement, which which does need that resourcing, absolutely. I just think we need to find different approaches that bring diverse t- voices to the table to ensure that we're listening. Mm. And I'm I'm not sure we're doing that effectively at the moment. I'm not sure we're listening to the voices that can t- give us the insight um, about what we need to do differently. Um, and so that takes quite a cultural shift, I think, in businesses and in policy makers and regulators as well. Yep. Yep. And it really flips the model when we start to think about the process of, of policy making. that if it's genuinely consumer-centric, it, it does need to embed and, and we do need to understand um, who we're talking about when we say consumers. They're not just, you know, we know there's not just one consumer yep. and, and they all respond like that. It's diverse. It's messy. It's why we find it so fascinating. I imagine people like you and I, Luke, understanding what's going on out there. But, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think we can all listen a lot more to each other and build shared understanding about what's going on out there because that's where the real change will come from um, when we're all actually open to understanding the problems a bit better and exploring the solutions a bit more collaboratively. That's a, it's a great note to end on, Lauren. It has been such a delight. Congratulations on all the great work you're doing there at the CPRC. More power to your arm as you work to put the interests of consumers front and centre as not just our energy system but how entire economy transforms around us. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. It's absolutely wonderful to be with you and hats off to the Energy Efficiency Council. Um, some massive work ahead, but some really important work. So congratulations to you and the team as well. Cheers, Lauren. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find Lauren at 
double underscore Lauren Solomon, all one word. My handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at ec.org.au and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon. How smooth do you do that? Like, like wow. Again, 45 episodes. <laughs> what a profit. What's that serial podcast I think I listened to on my last road, road trip? <laughs>